Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are WFMPLP Louisville. We broadcast from here in the historic Havern Building at 106.5 FM if you're listening in the Louisville area, or maybe you're checking us out online. Maybe you're anywhere in the state. Maybe you're a tenant anywhere in the state listening to us at forwardradio.org. Yes, we're going to talk about tenants' rights issues today on this show and return to the issue of housing justice that we've covered before on this program. Before we get there, though, just a quick reminder that forwardradio.org is also the place to go to become a part of this community. Uh, we are a community radio station. We need local voices in our media landscape, and that's why we created this station. It is radio for you, by you. If you've got an issue or a community or an interest that you feel deserves a megaphone, Forward Radio is here for you. We'd love to have you either producing a one-time access hour or a weekly program like this. So many options. You don't know, need to know anything about radio. We can get you all trained up. Just go to forwardradio.org, click participate, and uh, let us know what you've got in mind. We also rely entirely on listener contributions to keep us on the air and this is such a steal at only $20 a day we can all together afford this great community resource so maybe you could be a sponsor for today's broadcast just go to forwardradio.org and click on donate well let's talk about housing justice and tenants rights today I'm so excited to welcome into the studio someone who I met originally through a Kentucky Student Environmental Coalition KSEC their name is Bo Revlet and Bo is with Kentucky Tenants which is a new organization, right? Yep, absolutely. Tell me all about it, Bo. Yeah, so like you said, I'm Bo Revlet. I'm a tenant organizer with Kentucky Tenants, which is a new organization. It's a project of the Root Cause Research Center. And we started just, just recently after doing a lot of statewide tenant organizing work with a bunch of different local groups that have been doing work all across the state for a while. So we realized that there's a lot of great work happening around tenants movement in Kentucky, and we thought that this work should be coordinated across the state, and we yeah. wanted to be able to, to provide support for that and, and be able to also like provide resources and do organizing in places where there's not already a local organizing scene or tenant organizing group. So that's what Kentucky Tenants is all about. So here to build the tenant movement in Kentucky. And you have been involved in tenant organizing since, since your days in college, right? Yeah, I have. So I, I grew up in Georgetown, and as soon as I got to Lexington, I, I knew that I wanted to to get involved in, in housing justice work. And when I was in college, the kind of biggest tenant work that I did was uh, something called the Basic Needs Campaign at UK, uh, where we were working to get more uh, resources and a better environment for, for students who were facing food and housing sure. insecurity at UK. And that ended up being a pretty big campaign where we ended up getting like a, a full-time staff person hired, oh, wow. dedicated to food and housing security. And they opened like a $1 cafe on UK's campus. And yeah, it, it was successful and a really exciting campaign. And I knew after leaving college that I, I continued to want to be doing that work. I mean, I'm a renter myself. Uh, just before leaving my apartment this morning, you know, killed like six cockroaches. So, <laughs> ah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's a need. We got it. We, we, we need. We need better, more power for tenants. Oh uh, so we don't got to deal with cockroaches. The tenants' right to kill cockroaches. That, that is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, well, it's. I. We don't need to make light of it because there's some. There's some very serious issues here, and especially 
right now. Uh, this is a moment where the eviction moratorium has been lifted, right? I wonder if you could give us an update on, on that situation and, and how fragile is the situation for renters today in Kentucky? Yeah, so the eviction moratorium, so it lapsed for a few days and then the CDC re-implemented a, a weaker version of the already weak eviction moratorium. <laughs> and so where we are right now is that if you're in a place with high community spread of COVID, a county, then you aren't able to be evicted for non-payment of rent if you sign a declaration attesting to a, a few different factors, including like that you can't pay rent due to COVID and you've made good faith efforts to, to make payments, et cetera. So that's the protection that's in place right now, which is more than is usually in place, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> but it's very difficult. A lot of tenants don't know that that protection is in place. Oh, really? And a lot of times what happens is that a tenant receives an eviction notice and tenants, as soon as you see an eviction notice, you're like, I've got to get out. I'm yeah. going to lose my home. Yeah. Uh, and everyone knows that if you go to eviction court under normal circumstances, you're losing your home. I mean, over 98% of cases go the landlord's way in eviction court under normal circumstances. So tenants are just accustomed to as soon as you see the eviction notice, you get out because you don't want to have an eviction judgment on your record. And if you're out by the time the, the case comes before the court, the landlord might dismiss it and then you won't have it on your record. So it, it's often in, in tenants incentive to get out before having to go to court. So a lot of times what we see is that tenants don't go to court and court is often the only time where tenants are told like, look, there's this moratorium in place. You may be protected oh, really? by it. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's not, they, they aren't notified with their eviction notice. Landlords wow. don't have a, a duty to disclose it. None of that. So what we're seeing is, is a lot of tenants are, even tenants who would be protected by the moratorium are still getting evicted because they don't know about it. And then we also see Landlords are finding loopholes. I mean, if, if your lease is up, which I mean, we've, we've been in the pandemic, you know, for over a year now, if you're lucky, you have a year long lease. A lot of tenants are on month to month leases sure, sure. and landlords can evict you at the end of your lease for no reason, just wow. because they don't, right. don't want you there. Right. Exactly. So we're seeing that a lot. We're seeing landlords come up with all kinds of quote unquote lease violations that actually aren't very material. Things like, oh, <laughs> you didn't take your garbage out and we say you have to do that in the in the lease which is something that would never be enforced only they're just really policing tenants behavior because they want to get them out uh, because people are struggling right now yeah. and aren't, aren't able to pay in a lot of cases and so yeah lots of tenants still losing their homes despite the fact that you know we're reaching another peak of covid the cdc and and public health officials and researchers have repeatedly made the case that it is unsafe for communities for people to be evicted and to, to have to move around and to be forced to find a new home but nonetheless people continue to be evicted people have been evicted in kentucky ever since august 24th of last year which was the last time that uh, we had a comprehensive eviction moratorium in the state from from governor Bashir. there were evictions between march and august but they they were much fewer because we had a strong statewide eviction moratorium but ever wow. since governor Bashir lifted that we've seen evictions at a at a really high rate in the state uh, numbers are always hard to keep in my head, but do you have any, I, can you give us any sense of the scale in terms of numbers of, of people getting evicted from their homes? 
So I have a best sense of the numbers in Lexington. Okay, that's where that, I live. that'd be a good example, yeah. Yeah, so for example, in Lexington, what, what we're seeing is that the filings haven't slowed down much. So eviction filings are about at a, about the same rate that they usually are. And that's like 100 or so a week in Lexington. But uh, several of those are getting delayed until after the moratorium or, or, or getting dismissed or something like that. But we're still seeing, last I checked, it was we had two to three dozen a month people in Lexington getting evicted, which doesn't sound like a lot, but, but there shouldn't be any. Right. And right. that was the, the last time I looked at numbers was under the previous moratorium, which was stronger. And so those numbers may be higher. I know that there are counties where judges are just ignoring the moratorium altogether. Wow. Are just proceeding with evictions wow. on an anecdotal basis. I've, I've, I've heard people say that, and and you know, obviously, in places with higher population, you're going to see even more evictions. And uh, I know that uh, Rucaz Research Center does a, a, an eviction report, a quarterly eviction report, so you can find the numbers for Louisville uh, on the website at, at rucazresearch.org. So. Yeah, and in, in case listeners missed it, a, a couple months ago, I interviewed the authors of the 2021 State of Metropolitan Housing Report produced by folks from the University of Louisville and the Metropolitan Housing Coalition. And that has a really good description of this phenomenon that Bo was just describing that's happening statewide, but it, it's specifically focused on some of the numbers and what's going on here in Louisville. So you can find that uh, online at metropolitanhousing.org, or you could go back to the archives of this program just a couple months ago and hear that podcast version of that program at forwardradio.org. So so I have I have some sense of the scale now of this crisis. And the way you were describing it earlier, mm-hmm. what's jumping up in my brain is, okay, this is a great way to describe a classic power imbalance, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why the, the the imbalance in power between the renter and the and the homeowner that's why we need a tenants' rights movement, right? So mm-hmm. that we can reduce that at power imbalance and have more equity and make sure that people are treated fundamentally fairly, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think that a, a big way that this shows up, I mean, so I think fundamentally about going back to even the idea of like, why does a landlord get to charge rent? Why does a landlord get to control the housing of someone else when a lot of times they don't have any interest in the housing, like maintaining high standards? So we can ask ourselves this and and think like, what kinds of services does a landlord provide? What kinds of benefits do they provide to community, to their residents? And some of the things that immediately come to mind for folks are things like, oh, well, landlords are the folks who, if you have maintenance problems, you call them and they bring the maintenance guys in. Okay, sure. Uh, we'll come back. We'll come back to that later. Also, things like, well, the landlord is the person who who's able to pay the down payment when a lot of people on the property, whenever a lot of people aren't able to afford that, so they're expanding affordability and providing access to housing for people who otherwise wouldn't have access to housing. Okay, so that's a, a another like common thing that people point out that landlords do. And then a, a third kind of big section of work that people say, you know, we need landlords for is, well, there are a lot of like administrative things that go into maintaining units of housing. You know, you have to keep it in tax compliance. You have to receive applications for new tenants and all those sorts of things that, that are administrative. So three big buckets of work, right? The, the landlords are, are claimed to provide maintenance, administrative work, and then making it financially possible to, to live in a place. And I think that 
An important thing to note is that really tenants themselves could do all those things if they had either more power or more access to financial resources right, in, right. in each of those cases. <laughs> And I think that, you know, we, we could go back and forth and argue about that, but I think the really obvious proof of that is that homeowners do it all the time. Yeah. Like, homeowners <laughs> maintain their homes. Homeowners <laughs> pay their taxes. Homeowners, you know, whenever they decide to move out, they sell the home and have someone else move in. So people every single day do the things for their own homes that landlords uh, do for their homes and oftentimes do it better. You know, I talked earlier about I have cockroaches in my apartment and I've had roaches in my apartment since like the middle of July. So it's been, it's been a month now. And if I had like the freedom to just like call the exterminators and get them to come in and decide like what level of service I need and, and instruct them on, on how much to do. And, and I was like budgeting that into my own like housing expenses, then this would be taken care of, right? right? Uh, instead, I've put in like a dozen maintenance requests to my landlord. They've like sent a person out to, to do like some, it, they were supposed to be getting rid of the roaches. I've gotten more roaches since then. You know, <laughs> they it's brought just like, some with them, yeah. And so, you know, I put in another half dozen maintenance requests since then. And so it, it just becomes a bottleneck. Whereas if, if tenants were in control of their own properties, if tenants had the power to be able to make the decisions about their own living situations, then we wouldn't have that problem. So, so the, the like maintenance and administrative side is pretty obvious, I think, to folks. I, if, if, you, if you sit and think through it, there are some, some questions about like, well, with multi-unit properties, you have to make decisions about the property as a whole rather than just your individual unit. And that requires cooperation and coordination. And then a landlord has the interest of the building at whole in mind, whereas individual tenants don't. And I think that's just not true. I think uh. the, the, the landlord a lot of times is interested in maximizing their profits, not in the, the, the long-term health of the home. So you can approach it that way. But even if you accept that like the landlord does have the interest of the properties in mind, and some do, I mean, there are, you know, better landlords and worse landlords. Sure, absolutely. Sure. Um, but even if you do consider that to be the case, tenants absolutely have an obvious interest in like maintaining the health of their property. Yeah. And even if it's not, uh, you know, the reason that structural issues in an apartment are important are because eventually they're going to cause problems for the individual tenants. So individual tenants understand that. We don't have to assume that tenants are, are don't understand the problems or, or wouldn't be capable because, I mean... We're all humans, yeah. <laughs> so uh, why would you assume that a landlord would be able to figure that out better than a renter? Landlords aren't required to go through any training, any accreditation, right. any licensing, so, you know. Could be yeah. anybody, yeah. Could be anybody. I'm speaking today with Bo Revlet. They are an organizer, is that what you call yourself? Yeah, with, tenant uh, organizer. With Kentucky Tenants, a new project of the Root Cause Research Center, which we haven't even had a chance to really talk about much, but we will. And they are starting, uh, it has already begun in August, a tenant organizing training, which we also haven't talked about much, but we will, called Collectivizing Our Struggles. It's taking place around the state, available in person and virtually. You can learn more about it and register at rootcauseresearch.org slash tenant training. Before we get to that, though, Bo, I want to clear up in my mind, because I started out saying we're going to talk about housing justice, tenants' rights. You want to make a clear distinction, though, between those sort of framings and the need for a tenants' movement, period. So please help me understand the difference. Yeah, absolutely. So... 
I think of these as as corollaries to two ways of approaching political political work in general, where one is about ideological activism, uh, coming to conclusions, understanding like this is the kind of world I want to see because these are my beliefs and then fighting for that, which is good. Uh, and then on the other hand, class struggle, which is about interrogating our self-interest, understanding like our position within mm. the economic structure that we live in, the political structures that we live in, and realizing that like it is in my self-interest to transform this system to live a better life. And I think that both of these things are, are good and necessary, but the thing that I, I want to emphasize, and so kind of the way that I... Uh, talk about this is that ideological activism is in the head, class struggle is in the body. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. about if you can get food and, and a house to live in, right? And both of these things are good, but the predominant progressive forces in especially the U.S. are mostly driven by ideological activism. Right. And that's all well and good until you consider, like, how many ideological activists there are who who believe in these progressive causes from like a, a fundamental from from just a, an intellectual point of view? I, I reference a study that was done uh, like three or so years ago. Uh, it's a report called Hidden Tribes. You can find it online, uh, where they like segmented the U.S. population into different uh, different what they called subcultures based on. Uh, their political behaviors, their political beliefs, who yeah. they tended to associate with, how, how often they engaged. And it, it did seven subgroups, and uh, progressive activists were one of them. And uh, I think this, this like progressive activist subgroup, it's like everyone to the left of uh, the, the, the mainstream Democratic Party. So including like the burning wing, like, every, like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie, AOC, all them, and everybody to the left of that, all the different sects of like the far left. And that, in general, uh, is just 8% of the U.S. population, which is just a, a minuscule number. And if we're talking about actually transforming the system, we can't do it with just 8% of the population. Uh, we, we have to have a majority of folks uh, really pushing for, for these kinds of changes. And, and then whenever you look closer at that like progressive activist subculture, uh, you see that it, it is 80% um, white, which is wider <laughs> yeah. than any other subgroup except the far right. The far right is the only group that's wider. <laughs> and it's only, I think it's only 3% black, which is the least black of any subculture, including the far right. Wow. So, and it's also more likely, the progressive activist subculture is more likely to earn six figures than any other segment wow. of the population, uh, more likely to have uh, higher education degrees, to live in large cities, these kinds of things. So it, it's a very insular group. Uh, that often isn't actually self-interested in, 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 in the politics that uh, progressive activists are espousing. And so I say this all like, uh, I would definitely be in the progressive activist subculture. Like, there's no question. <laughs> like, uh, and, and a lot of the people that I work with would too. But then there are so many more people who are self-interested in seeing the kinds of changes that we talked about. Uh, that, that, that we're talking about and pushing for, you know, whenever uh, I, you know, talked about the power imbalance between landlords and tenants and how tenants should be able to control their own housing. There's no reason that they can. It would drive down prices. It would increase their quality of life. There are millions and millions and millions of people who are self-interested in doing that. 40% of, of most places are renters. So, you know, every renter has a self-interest in transforming the housing system. 
away from control by landlords. So the universe of people who want, should be, can be pushing for a greater a transformation of, of the housing system in favor of people who are currently tenants is much larger than the progressive activists right now. Right. And so that's why we need to shift from uh, an ideological activism focus to a, a class struggle focus. And so, like I said, your question was about tenants' rights movement, housing justice movement, and tenants' movement. And so I think of housing justice movement and tenants' rights movement as mostly being about ideological activism. Like I got you. They're, they're mostly driven by uh, people who have self-identified progressive politics or who are professional advocates or who work for nonprofits or things like that, all of which is fine and good. Like, we, we need that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and... We also need the power of the people. We need the power of the people. And, <laughs> yeah. and we'll only get there if we expand to, to, to working on a tenants movement. And, and the, the difference being like it's, it's tenants with an apostrophe. Tenants own the movement. So it's, right. it's about housing justice and tenants' rights or goals are things that we want. Right. And it, whereas a tenants movement is about what tenants are doing to struggle to transform their own conditions. Uh, wow. And I just I, I steal the distinction from a writer named Julian Francis Park. So credit to Julian. Yeah. Uh, really excellent. Well, thank writer. you. That was extremely helpful. Uh, and that is the kind of education one might get in this tenant organizing training, which I think it's time we, we turn our attention to here. Uh, it's called Collectivizing Our Struggles, and it happens every Saturday through December 18th, pretty much. I think you're taking a break for a couple of holidays there, but uh, from 2 to 3.30 p.m. at various locations around Kentucky. But folks can join via Zoom from anywhere, and you can learn more and register at Root Cause Research search.org slash tenant training and the next louisville training is actually coming up on saturday september 11th and it's on base building 101 it'll be taking place at the joshua tabernacle baptist church there on 15th street near muhammad ali at 426 south 15th street right here in louisville but tell us about the broader uh, training series it's already it got started on august 7th so we've already a little bit way into it uh what are some of the goals who is the intended audience are you trying to build a tenants movement here yeah absolutely absolutely the the training series is about building the tenants movement in kentucky and we know we're not starting from scratch we're, we're doing this training series with some really great local partners uh, all across the state so we're working with uh bowling green anti-eviction network lexington housing justice collective lexington tenants union madison county tenants union mama bears beecher Root Cause Research Center and uh, Rowan County Listening Project. I've so got to ask about the Mama Bears of Beecher. What is that organization? So, I love it. Yeah, Mama Bears of Beecher is is a group of folks at, at Beecher Terrace, a uh, public housing yes. complex here here in right Louisville, here in Louisville, who uh, they're mamas and they're tenants and and they're 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 struggling <laughs> to try to get better conditions in the, yes. in the house where they live in. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we know that there are there are tenants struggling to transform their conditions in Kentucky, and we know that it's 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 a much smaller group than the entire universe of tenants in the state. And so this training series is about 
communicating and, and getting folks together to, to build a shared vision of what we can do to build the tenants movement in Kentucky. Okay. So it's both for folks who, who are already involved in the tenants movement, but we really want anyone who's a renter, anyone who, you know, is, is living under a landlord who won't clear, clear out the mold from their apartment or uh, who's paying too much in rent. Uh, and, you know, even like folks who uh, are, are, are homeowners who uh, can't afford the mortgage or who are, are worried about foreclosure or who are paying too high of utility bills, all of these things where uh, you don't have ultimate control over your housing and the costs that go into it. These are the kinds of things that we're trying to transform. And so we want folks who, anyone who, who feels that they are self-interested in, in having a better housing system to come to these training series. And we're talking, uh, we started in August, uh, August 7th, like you said, and are going through December. And this first month is more kind of framing analysis, like theor theoretical things. So it's uh, talking about what are the big power structures in the world right now? Uh, what's the current housing system look like? What kinds of rights do tenants have right now? What's the history behind the current housing system? And like, what's our vision of a better housing system? So that's all in August. And I think that a lot of times whenever you hear political education, those are the kinds of things that you expect. Like yeah, you yeah, expect yeah. to like learn some things that will change your worldview or something like that. Um, and those are good and we need those and that's why we're starting with them. But then we're also, we're spending the majority of our time from September through the end of December uh, talking about how do we actually transform the conditions that we're living in? What does it mean to organize? How do we get more people in the movement? What's, a, what's an organizing campaign? How do you launch an organizing campaign? How do you pick targets? How do you research those targets? How do you uh, figure out the ways to move your targets into the kinds of actions that you need? How do you use the media to, to help uh, with your movement? How do you uh, plan a direct action? What nice. is a direct action? How do you, uh, you know, what roles do you need? All these kinds of things. So really nitty gritty spending, you know, uh, three months on that and uh, are really, really excited about it. And so far we've uh, had two trainings already. Um, by the time this airs, we'll, we will have had three trainings. Uh, and it's been going really well. We've get, it's really great energy in the room, getting a lot of good feedback. It's a, it's a large crowd, both like in person and on Zoom, everywhere that we're going. So um, I'm really excited for it and think that, and I'll also make the point that even if you haven't come to any trainings yet, you should come. You should come. You should Start come. Jump in any, at any time. Yeah, right? you can jump in at any time. All of the trainings stand alone. You definitely do like you'll 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 learn more the more that you come. Absolutely, but you can they come to any of the trainings, whatever piques your interest. So, yeah, we want people there. And you know, I imagine something like forty percent, maybe fifty percent of our listeners are renters. Mm -hmm. uh, what about the other, uh, you know, sixty to fifty percent? Uh, should they attend? Would they get something out of this as well? Yeah, so I'll say a couple of things here. One is that when I say tenants, uh, so a lot of people, whenever they say tenants, they mean renter and that those are the same thing. I mean something a little bit broader by tenants. What I mean by tenants is anyone who does not have ultimate control over their housing. 
And so that includes, uh, like I said, uh, renters, obviously. It also includes uh, some working class homeowners who are, who are paying a mortgage that they can't afford, who are like at the mercy of the bank, who yeah. may be able to come in and foreclose on them at any time. It includes anyone who's, you know, uh, couch surfing, anyone who's sleeping outside, sleeping at a shelter, anyone who's doubled up sure. temporarily, uh, just it, anyone who does not have ultimate control over their housing, which is a, a, a larger number than renters. But um, also, uh, though, we, we're definitely focused on tenants, people who, who don't have control of their housing, because we know that that's the kind of, that's the political force that we need to transform the system. And anyone can contribute to the tenants movement. Uh, it just means that you will have to be acting in the interest of tenants and not out of your own self-interest. And that takes a lot of work and a, a lot of deliberacy. But I mean, folks are, are, are definitely welcome but uh, definitely, it's, it's a tenant-centered space. We're going to be centering tenants' voices. We're going to be uh, talking primarily to tenants and about tenants. So just be prepared for that if you come and, and, and you are a tenant or, or you don't identify as a tenant. This is about the liberation of, of, the liberation of the land from, from profit motive as well as like the, the liberation of lives from you know, the misery that's often involved with having to pay rent to someone yeah. who doesn't care about your living situation. Yeah. Yeah. Is the term ally appropriate here? Yeah, Would that yeah. Be, okay. folks are allies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the folks are allies. And boy, when you were talking about the situation of not having control over your housing and, and tenancy, boy, it got me thinking about tenant farmers too, right? Mm -hmm. And and so many businesses are tenants too. You know, small, yeah, like obviously I'm not talking about big corporations here, but small businesses that are at the mercy of their landlord. Yeah. Um, is it, do you want to ignore those issues for the time being so we can focus on housing or is this actually a broader movement of tenants of all kinds? Yeah. Well, so, um, ultimately I, <laughs> I don't see the, like I was saying earlier, it's, it's unclear to me what the value of landlordism is. Yeah. Okay. And <laughs> I, I don't say that flippantly. Like I say that seriously. Um, I'm, I'm, I am open. Like if people want to email me and talk about this, like yeah. I want to know if, if someone has a good argument for why we should have <laughs> landlords, please tell me because I've thought about this a lot and it, it really, it, it seems like, uh, Landlordism is, is a system designed to to create more wealth for a small number of people, uh, and it, it is pitched to people as what gives them housing and provides them housing and and a place for their business or uh, a, a place for them to work, those kinds of things. But that ultimately all, all the only function that it ends up serving that couldn't be better served by residents themselves or like uh, uh, a community of people who, who are governing it. Um, yeah. is to provide profit for, for that land. Right. So, yeah, right. I think that, yeah, that, that that's absolutely an appropriate point. And I'll, I'll say, uh, you mentioned tenant farmers. Uh, I wasn't in, expecting to talk about this, but I, I recently... <laughs> Sorry, no, <laughs> that's where my brain went. <laughs> yeah, no, you're good, you're good. Uh, it's a good point. Uh, and I mean, that's a, especially true, like, you know, Kentucky, we're a big horse industry. Yeah. A lot of people, yeah. you know, there's a lot of migrant labor that comes in and, and, and works on horse farms. And often those are like informal arrangements. And those people definitely don't have control over their housing. And they may not even formally be recognized as renters because maybe they don't have a lease. Uh, and maybe, maybe they're just there at the, at the whims of their landlord, which exposes them to all kinds of exploitative uh, behaviors that the, the landlord, who is also often their boss, uh, can, can, mm -hmm. can expose them to. So... 
But I, I recently read a book by uh, Robin D.G. Kelly, who's a, a historian, called Hammer and Ho, which is about uh, the, the uh, communists in, the, in rural Alabama primarily in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Uh, and, you know, this was a lot of uh, sharecroppers. They had a, a big sharecroppers union. And uh, they also did a lot of union organizing. And a lot, it, so it was both sharecroppers and then people who were working in industry, steel workers and, and, and miners and things like that, and heavy industry. And they would often live on site. This was uh, around the Great Depression was, was a, a big time. I mean, in Kentucky, we had company, company towns, coal towns, where like all the housing was owned by the bosses. And so, uh, but that also led to like a really high level of, of tenant organizing as well. Like, because the bosses, bosses would often evict a tenant yeah. for organizing on the job or just yeah. because they didn't want them to work there anymore because they didn't think that they were healthy for the community. They would just evict them for no reason. And so, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that also really speaks to the, the point that there's, there's both an analogous relationship between uh, landlord and tenant and, and boss and worker um, and that uh, one of the, the landlord and the boss are extracting value um, that uh, I would argue they don't really have a right to or, or haven't, uh, they don't have a right to extract all of that value. Um, and that creates a power differential where the worker and the tenant are at the whims of, of the desires and the interests of the landlord and the boss uh, that does not serve them and that, that ultimately creates a lot, a lot of misery in our lives that, that is needless. Um, and so that, you know, labor movement, tenant movement need to be combined. Uh, and just like, just like with, with tenants, uh, we need a tenants movement uh, that's rooted in class struggle, labor movement, same way. There's so many more workers than there are people who, you know, believe in uh, a living wage, say, uh, like ideologically, have come to that conclusion ideologically. But, you know, you go to a worker and you're like, should you be paid, you know, enough? Uh, you, should you be paid the value of their labor? And they're like, well, yeah, yeah <laughs> of course. So, so I, I think that that also is just another way to, to point out that we need to be focusing on class struggle. We need to be focusing on speaking to people's self-interest and their body, not their minds, uh, because a lot of time the mind follows the body. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, yes, we, we need a liberatory future. There are reasons that people get into ideological activism, and it's because we get compelled by a vision of the future that is beautiful and that, that we should struggle for mm. and believe in. And if we're being realistic, uh, there's just we're, we're not going to win our, on arguments alone. Yeah. We're going to have to meet people's material needs, and we're going to have to engage them in struggle to transform their material situation. And then, like, the beliefs can come later. Thank you for going down that little rabbit hole with me. That was yeah. great. I'm, I'm speaking today with Bo Revlet. They are an organizer with Kentucky Tenants, a new project of the Root Cause Research Center. Uh, and... They are organizing a tenant organizing training, collectivizing our struggles every Saturday from 2 to 3.30 p.m. at various locations around the state, also available anywhere you are via Zoom. And they're coming to Louisville on Saturday, September 11th for Base Building 101 at the Joshua Tabernacle Baptist Church there at 15th and Muhammad Ali right here in Louisville. Um, so folks can register anytime. You don't need to have started at the beginning on August 7th. Just go to rootcauseresearch.org slash tenant training. Um, so another thing I know you wanted to talk about is the concept of social housing. Uh, I think we know about 
what public housing is, although I think a lot of people don't know how it works or why it looks like it does, mm -hmm. and what the situation is for uh, people in public housing versus traditional landlords, like when the state is your landlord, mm -hmm. how is it different? But anyway, mm -hmm. uh, I assume public housing is something different from social housing. So talk to me about those differences. Yeah, absolutely. So, so public housing is sometimes social housing. <laughs> okay. Public housing in the U.S., I would not consider social housing. Social housing is uh, primarily defined by two characteristics, one being that it's uh, owned and controlled by residents and the communities uh, wherein the, the housing resides and two being that it's decommodified in some way. Oh. Uh, it's not primarily driven by profits. Uh, and, and so this is a lot of times people hear this, especially folks who, who disagree with, with me politically hear this and say, well, that's unrealistic. There are real costs of housing. How are you gonna pay off the mortgage? How are you gonna pay uh, for taxes and stuff like that? Decommodified doesn't mean free. I mean, ultimately, free housing, I think, would be cool and great. <laughs> but I do recognize, like, yes, we have to pay the cost of housing. But the real cost of housing are much lower than the rents that people are paying. And we can see this. That's, that's not just like a theoretical thing. There are examples of uh, like limited equity cooperatives where yeah. uh, they're resident owned communities that uh, are resale, the value, the, the resale value is restricted. Okay. So that means that uh, the, the prices don't go up in it. And these people pay rent at rates that are like half of the market rate wow. for nice apartments. Uh, and so, like this is this is realistic, and and these are. But that's things. not in the U.S. You're saying. Well, so there are some liquid, limited equity cooperatives like that in the U.S., but they're just a tiny, 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 tiny minority right? yeah. of the total housing stock. Um, but so so those are the two primary uh, characteristics: resident control and decommodification. There are some other uh, characteristics that are a little more like. Uh, obscure that I won't go into here, but I would refer people to a really good short article by uh, Oksana Miranova and Thomas Waters called What is Social Housing? that uh, they published through the Community Service Society of New York. Uh, I can send you the link. And yeah, maybe we'll put that in the show, in the show notes. notes. Yeah, that'd be uh, great. Yeah, uh, the the outlines like some characteristics, and uh, it, it's a it's focused on New York State. Okay. So, but it, it does like a concrete analysis of the housing stock in New York State, and to what degree uh, various ha types of housing are social housing, right? And so all that's a little dry and like theoretical. Uh, <laughs> what I what I really want to say about social housing is that it connects really closely to this idea that I was saying earlier that residents are the people who can make the best decisions about the housing that they're living in. Mm. They know when there are repairs that need to be made. They know whenever they need a community garden that's shared between them. They know if they want a collective laundry room or if they want to put a nice statue in the yard. Like they know those things and they know, hey, I want to spend my money on this or hey, we want to come together and, and pull our collective resources to spend our money on this much better than a landlord does. And social housing is a way to enact that. So that's, that's why, like, the resident control is important. And it's also, like, uh, so 
resident control and like raising the resident standard of living is an important thing. And also, like you were saying earlier about like the eviction crisis, a lot of people just can't pay the rent. Sure. And even if you aren't getting evicted, a lot of people are paying over 30%, over 50% of their income on rent means wow. that they have to cut back on, on food means they have to, you know, uh, limit their, their doctor visits because we don't have healthcare either. Uh, all these kinds of things. And that's but by the, by definition, that means they're housing insecure, right? If they're paying more than 30% of their yeah. income for rent. Yeah. Cost burden is the or term that, that yes, the federal okay. government uses. Thank you. Thank um, you. and then severely cost burden if they're over 50%, but okay. yeah. Um, and that's that's uh, so there are 12 million people in the U 12 million households rather in the U.S. that are severely cost burdened, so paying over 50 percent of their income on housing costs, and that includes both uh, renters and and homeowners, yeah, so wow. mortgage costs, 12 million households. But anyway, so like decommodification as the other aspect of social housing means that people can afford housing better if it's taken off the private market. And again, it, it may sound like a fantasy. There, there's a book called Carving Out the Commons by Amanda Huron, who uh, did some case studies of some limited equity cooperatives in Washington, D.C., uh, which Washington, D.C. is a very hot housing market. Wow. Like, it's, 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 it's expensive to live in D.C. She just published this book in 2018, uh, so, so it's a recent study. Very, very expensive housing market. But... Um, you know, D.C. has a, a, a history that's kind of independent of the rest of the U.S. The U.S.'s political system and that they didn't have local governance until the 1970s. Uh, they, were, they were governed by U.S. Congress until then. And uh, they were the first majority black city in the country. Yeah. And they became majority black at around the same time that they got uh, a municipal government that is elected by its citizens. And that meant that some of like the first legislators that were put in office were black progressive folks uh, in the 70s, which is like right after the civil rights movement, you know, black power is a, is, a, is a big deal. And so that meant that there were like strong and, and because they weren't bogged down by this political history where like developers really quickly capture local governments yeah. and, and are really savvy about getting local governments to spend money sure that, that benefits Especially developers. Especially in Louisville, yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and because there wasn't that political political history and that entrenched like relationship between public officials and the developers, there were good tenant laws passed in the first like five years oh, wow. of, of Washington DC home rule, uh, including what's called a tenant opportunity to purchase act, huh. uh, which means that anytime a, a house goes up for sale, a property goes up for sale, if it's being rented, uh, the tenants have first right of refusal there they they get to make the first offer on the home and they get to you can write the law different ways but they get to like review uh future purchasers you know and so if it's this big corporate landlord who they do the research and they're like no they charge massive rents and they don't take care of their properties the tenants can say no uh, those kind of things but importantly the tenants are able to buy the properties collectively and own it as a as a cooperative or a community land trust and uh in addition because, like we said earlier, one of the things that landlords do is pay the down payment and and take on a lot of debt because they're deemed credit worthy because they right. already have a lot of capital. Right. Uh, so because they're already wealthy, they're able to amass more wealth. And a lot of tenants, even collectively pulling their resources, just don't have that kind of money up front. But under the other thing that DC did is uh, introduced a, a financing mechanism for tenants to to put teeth behind the tenant Oppor opportunity to purchase act. Um, which meant that there were tenants who were able to collectively buy and own their homes. And this was not, you know, we hear about 
cooperatives or intentional communities where it's like a bunch of people who look like me, you know, like I'm, I look like a hippie. I got long hair and like <laughs> they, a bunch of those people like come in and live together and they're like, yeah, I'm living like a, a communal life. This wasn't like that. This was like poor working class people, yeah. people working jobs as like janitors or like cleaning folks homes who were like, man, I'm paying too much in rent. My landlord doesn't care about me. This seems like a decent thing that can, can give me the opportunity to, to own this home and pay yeah. low rent. And yeah. like, it's nice. And so you, you ended up seeing, this was in DC. Uh, so like really hot market, but you ended up seeing folks who were like living in four or five bedroom apartments, like good, big wow. spacious apartments with their families. You know, these are oftentimes like single mothers with big families and are paying half of the market rent because they did the work to collectively purchase and own and manage their wow. housing. Wow. Uh, and so like that, there, there are about, uh, I think 6,000 units of limited equity really? cooperatives in DC, which is, you That's know, astounding. Wow. It's, it's a lot. It's also still a small minority of, course. of even the, the housing <laughs> stock in DC, but it works really, really well and beautifully for exactly the kind of people who need it, yeah. you know? Yeah. And exactly, and, and you know, it frees up people to from, uh, you know, having to work that terrible job that they have to continue to work or having to work two, three jobs uh, to, to be able to afford their rent. It frees them up from those kinds of things. So it not only like helps you control your housing uh, and, and allows you to save some money, it can also liberate you to, to lead a, a more fulfilling life, have more time to, to do other things that you want. So, uh, these kinds of things are possible even in, you know, D.C. Is, is, has massive gentrification problems. Right. D.C. has, uh, I mean, you know, talk about a place where the political class is being really savvy and making all kinds of back <laughs> deals. Like, D.C. Is, is the capital of the world for that. Yeah. Uh, so, that's it's possible. Great, hey, that's a great example to share. Um, yeah. Sadly, we've reached the end of our time. I want to give you one last uh, chance, though, before we go to, to plug the training series and remind people how they can get involved. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Kentucky Tenant Organizing Training Series, uh, you, you can come learn how to, to transform the conditions that, that you're living in as a renter or to help folks who, who are struggling to pay the rent, who are uh, unable to, to control their own housing. You can come learn how that happens and how you can make a difference. And uh, you can go to rootcauseresearch.org slash tenant training and sign up. Even if you haven't uh, come to the previous trainings, come to whatever trainings pique your interest and we'll be happy to see you. Available on Zoom or in person. Great, thank you so much, Bo Revlet. Organizer with Kentucky Tenants, thanks for coming in the studio and joining me today. We look forward to keeping our finger on the pulse of the tenants movement here in Louisville and around the state. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. All right. Stay tuned, everyone. Coming up in just a second, your community action calendar will remind you about that training series and so many other ways to plug in, help make sustainability a reality in our community today. So stay tuned, my friends. While the sun shines bright on my whole Kentucky home Tis summer and the people are gay And the corn tops rise while the meadows are in bloom Them birds are making music all the day Said weep no more, my lady oh, and 
sing one song for my whole Kentucky home, for my whole Kentucky home far away. Now the young folks roll on that little cabin floor, on Mary, all happy and bright. By and by, hard times will come a knocking at the door. My whole Kentucky home, good night. I said, weep no more, my lady, oh, and weep no more today. And we'll sing one song for my whole Kentucky home, for my whole Kentucky home far away. Daddy Rico! Here on Forward Radio, WFMP, Louisville, broadcasting at 106.5 FM and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. You're tuned in to Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, and I am about to get you out your calendars and get your pencils sharpened because this is the week for action for sustainability, my friends. Together, we can create the future we want, but we have to dig in and get involved and not do the normal thing. So why don't you try something new this week? It could start on Tuesday with a virtual wild and scenic Red River Fest. You've heard about it on this program before. It's Tuesdays through the end of the month at 6 p.m. on Zoom with the Kentucky Waterways Alliance inviting you to join them for this virtual wild and scenic Red River Fest every Tuesday. And uh, there you can join from anywhere uh, at this fourth annual Red River Fest. And coming up this Tuesday, the 24th, the theme is botanizing and plant conservation in the Red River watershed. The presenter is going to be Native Plant Society and Kentucky Nature Preserves Tara Littlefield. And it wraps up on the 31st with Caring for Your Household Septic System, presented by UK's Melissa McAllister and Wolf County Health Department's James Ed Wisman. You won't want to miss it. It's free, it's family-friendly, and you can register at kwalliance.org every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on Zoom through the end of the month. Now, Wednesdays through uh, at least through mid-September, Bernheim Forest down in Claremont, Kentucky, is having midweek nature walks for you early birds on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Coming up August 25th as well as September 1st and 8th. 
Summer mornings are often the coolest part of the day, of course, and Bernheim is extra lovely in softer morning light. These hikes are led by Bernheim staff and volunteer naturalists each Wednesday through September 8th. They encourage you to dress for the weather and wear shoes that you don't mind getting earthy. Space is limited for safety, so register early and no pets, please. There is a small fee and registration and payment are due by 4 p.m. on the Tuesday prior to the Wednesday midweek nature walk. You can get them uh, those tickets and reservations by calling 502-955-8512 or going online at bernheim.org. That's B-E-R-N-H-E-I-M.org. Now, the Louisville Climate Action Network wants to help you learn how to be a savvier consumer, and they are putting on great before-you-buy workshops. Coming up this Saturday, August 28th, it's a workshop on going solar. It's at 1 p.m. on Saturday, and it's virtual. Um, you can register via Eventbrite, uh, and you can find a link to that and learn more about it at louisvillecan.org. That's louisvillecan.org. And if you can't do it this Saturday, Saturday the 28th, you could catch the same Before You Buy workshop on Golding Solar on Saturday, October 16th. That one's going to be in person at 1 p.m. at Highlands Shelby Park Free Public Library. And the topic for this is going solar and, and from deciding whether your home business or ground is suitable for, for and choosing a certified installer and everything in between about how you would go solar. No commitment is necessary, but come out and learn more this Saturday, 1 p.m. Virtually, go to louisvillecan.org. And, of course, as I mentioned during the interview, the tenant organizing training, Collectivizing Our Struggles, is continuing Saturdays at 2 p.m. at various locations around Kentucky and available online in collaboration with tenant-led organizations across the state, put on by Kentucky Tenants, a project of Root Cause Research Center. It kicked off earlier in August, and this August 28th, coming up on Saturday at 2 p.m., it's People Over Profits, Transformative Visions of Housing. The location is going to be down at the Rowan County Public Library, but you can join virtually from wherever you are. All you need to do is get registered, and it's super easy and free. Just go to Root rootcauseresearch.org slash tenant training rootcauseresearch.org slash tenant training and again the series continues through December 18th uh, every Saturday 2 to 3.30 p.m. and it'll be coming to Louisville on September 11th uh, for Base Building 101 so learn more at rootcauseresearch.org slash tenant training now I told you about this in the spring, and Louisville Grows is having its first ever fall seeds and starts sale. Yes, even if you didn't do a spring or summer garden this year, fall is actually a great time to grow a lot of different crops. And there's going to be in-person sales at the Louisville Grows Healthy House. Their greenhouse is at 1639 Portland Avenue, and you can come by in person on Saturday, August 28th and September 11th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. 
Uh, and you can learn more and pre-order at seedsandstarts.org. Fall is an often overlooked gardening season, and Louisville Grows is here to help you take full advantage of it. As the heat of summer bears on, the enthusiasm we once had in spring has long waned, and we're biding our time until the crisp, crisp fall air moves in. But late August and early September is the best time to rejuvenate your garden and make it produce vegetables through Christmas. Planting cold crops in late summer allows them ample time to grow before fall's first frost. But because they are so frost tolerant, they continue soaking up the sun's rays and continue growing, albeit slowly, through December. In fact, gardeners often have better luck growing fussy vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower in fall rather than in spring because you don't have to worry as much about insect pests, weeds, or bolting in the summer's heat. And the cooler temperatures also make them sweeter and less bitter. Root vegetables are also perfect for fall gardening. You don't have to pick them before frost. Things like carrots can be left in the ground, mulched with straw or leaves, and dug as you need them. If you want to grow things in the fall focused on things that are very frost tolerant, like coal crops and lettuces, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kale, lettuces, carrots, turnips, rutabagas, and mustard greens are all varieties that are good for planting in fall. Other plants can overwinter as well and be harvested in the early spring, like onions and garlic. And you can get all of this stuff through Louisville Grows. And you can learn more at seedsandstarts.org and coming out to the in-person sale at their greenhouse, 1639 Portland Avenue on Saturday, August 28th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And if you can't make it this Saturday, come on out on September 11th as well. Now, coming up on Saturday also, it's Women's Equality Day at the Fraser History Museum. They are doing a program called Storytellers. It's from, uh, well, it starts at 9 a.m. with vendors and networking, and the main program is 10 a.m. to noon. There'll be another half hour afterwards for more exchange with the vendors and networking. The featured speakers on Saturday's program, which is free and open to the public, are Dr. Carolyn Maslumi, author, curator, quilter and strong advocate for presenting and documenting African-American made quilts, as well as Bess Lomax Hawes from National Endowment for the Arts National Heritage Fellow. You'll also hear from Hannah Drake, the amazing poet, activist, artist, and one of the creators of the Unknown Project, a memorial to enslaved Louisvillans. It's sponsored by Louisville Metro Office for Women, the Fraser History Museum, and the League of Women Voters Louisville Chapter. It's free and open to the public, and it is this Saturday. The main program is 10 a.m. to noon, but doors open at 9 for vendors and networking. And you can learn more and RSVP at FraserMuseum.org, F-R-A-Z-I-E-R Museum.org. And that is located at 829 West Main Street. Come on out this Saturday starting at 9 a.m. Also coming up on Saturday, August 28th, it's the next pop-up drop-off put on by the city, an opportunity for free recycling. Uh, no matter where you live in the city, maybe you're in an apartment that doesn't offer recycling, or maybe you're outside of the main services district, or maybe you've got something that you can't put on curbside but can actually be recycled. This is a great opportunity to do it this Saturday, August 28th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. out at First. Fern Creek High School, 9115 Fern Creek Road, 
and they accept all kinds of items. You can bring up to three different electronic items for recycling, metal and appliances, household recyclables like paper, plastic, metal, and glass. Yard waste can be brought for composting. They'll be on-site paper shredding and recycling, and you can bring up to four passenger tires for recycling as well. Uh, you won't want to miss this if you out live out near the Fern Creek High School. Uh, come on out this Saturday, August 28th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thanks so much for tuning in. I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time. Until then, be well, my friends. Oh,